Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Well, good morning, Ascent. So good to see you guys. I'm feeling pretty good this morning. I got my floral shirt on, which means it's going to be a good Sunday. And uh, my wife laid out my clothes for me. And we're going to listen to the bumper again, because why not? Uh, and uh, gets gets me kind of in a good mood. I like the way that bumper sounds. Thank you, Ty, for playing it again. Woo, everybody give a hand to Ty in the back. He found out he was running the computer at 3 a.m. this morning when uh, when Rick called in sick. So uh, production guy's just never a good guy to be, really, because nobody thinks about you unless you mess up, which is <laughs> just a really bad job to have. So we thank Ty for that. We are in the second part of our series called New Normal, which is really our 15th part in a greater series through the Gospel of Mark. And we're coming to this portion in the scripture that is uh, one of those strange stories that oftentimes we don't really know what to do with. In fact, we've got two strange stories back to back that Mark ties together, I believe, on purpose. We have Jesus on top of the mountain and we have Jesus in the valley. And we learn something in both places. So we have the transfiguration, which means transformation of Jesus. Uh, And then we come down the mountain and there's this boy who's possessed by a demon. And Jesus is going to teach us something about faith and dependence upon him in both of these stories. And really, the thing I, I believe Mark is trying to show us is actually incredibly, incredibly simple. But we try to make it complex, or at least I try to make it complex, because it is very, very scary. Here's really the main point. We're about to walk through this text just line by line. Fascinating story. I'm going to let it unfold for us together. But the main point of this message, I believe, is God loves you. He wants you to experience his kingdom and his presence. But the way to experience his kingdom and his presence is through the cross. It's through suffering. If you want to experience the presence of God, if you want to experience the love of God, you're going to have to go through suffering. And the reason that scares us is because what we like to do as humans is to go around suffering in any which way possible. Like, can I go around it? Can I I get a magic pill to fix this side of my life or this side of my life? And and what ends up happening is we never actually go through it. And Jesus says, hey, if you're going to come with me, you're going to follow me through the suffering. I can show you a better side on the other side of the suffering, but there's only one way there. And that's through the cross of Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the four questions I always ask you guys when you're doing your personal Bible study to ask. If you're ever like, how do I study my Bible, Blake? How do I read my Bible? I'd tell you to do this. You read the text four times, and each time you ask this question in this order. Number one, you ask, who is God? Oftentimes we come to the text, the first thing we ask is, what does it say about me? I think it's a pretty bad way to read the Bible. What you should do is say, what does this say about God? What do I learn about his character, who he is? And then you go through a second time, and you ask this question, what has he done? What has God done through Jesus and his redemptive plan? And then the third question you ask is, who am I? So in light of who God is, in light of what God has done, who am I? What is my identity? And then finally, the last question, which is the question a lot of us start with, is how do I live? In light of who God is, in light of what he's done, in light of my new identity in Christ, how then do I live? And this text walks through those four questions perfectly. And so we're just going to go through them one by one. My goal when I'm preaching the Bible is always to preach it in such a way that when you open the word of God and you read it, you can see where I'm getting what I'm saying. Uh, I believe in my soul, I'm a teacher. Like that's just how God has made me. Uh, So I always try to teach the scripture in such a way that you can understand it. If there's ever a question, especially when we come into the transfiguration, you're like, I don't understand this part of it or that part of it. Please ask me after the service. I love answering those kind of questions. And I want you to understand the Bible because I believe this is 
This is so key. This is so key to the health of our marriages today. This is so key to the health of our lives and our anxieties. And the source of so much of our pain is because we try to avoid pain. And I believe we're going to see that today. So very first question is, who is God? And we're going to jump in chapter 9, verse 1, and just walk through this crazy story. And we're going to answer the questions one by one. Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. It says, then he, he being Jesus, said to them, truly, I tell you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And we talked about this last week, how Jesus brought the kingdom with him. My whole life, it was like the job of the pastor, the job of evangelism is to get somebody to go to heaven. And Jesus says, actually, it's to get heaven into people, that the kingdom of God is here. We can begin to live an eternal life right now. It begins the moment we are converted. And yes, of course, it continues on after our physical death, but it begins right now. And then I love the way the message paraphrase says this next one. Uh, In verse one of the message, it says, he he says that people are going to taste the kingdom. And then it says six days later, it did happen. And that's exactly what we see here. It says after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they are going to be exposed to the power of the kingdom of God in a way that nobody's ever going to believe when they come down the mountain and try to tell them what is about to happen to them. They have no idea what's about to happen. But you and I, as good Bible readers, know something amazing is going to happen. And here's how we know that. Anytime the Bible says after six days, that means it's on the seventh day, you pay attention. Because the number seven is very important. And then they go up a mountain. I mean, there's just nothing more spiritual than going up a mountain. And that's exactly what Jesus does. It says... He led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Now, if you are a scripture reader, if you are a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl raised in the Old Testament, your mind immediately goes to Exodus in the Old Testament when there was another guy who went up a mountain. His name was Moses. And there's a famous story where Moses goes up the, the mountain and he meets with God on top of the mountain. And on top of the mountain, God gives him what we know as the Ten Commandments. And he goes on and he has more conversations with God as they get the, the whole law that is for the people. And Moses came down the mountain and he was glowing from his experience with God. Literally, his face was shining bright from this experience with God. And the people are terrified because of the power of God that they're experiencing and they're seeing. And they're saying, Moses, you go talk to God for us because if we go up there, we're going to die. Now, here we are, thousands of years later, and Jesus is leading his guys up another mountain. And then it says this, by themselves to be alone, he was transfigured, which it's like transformed, but it's so much more than that. He's, he's turned into a, a divine being right in front of their very eyes. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them, which is a, a symbol of his divinity. And also in, in, the, in the New Testament, later on, John would describe people wearing white as martyrs, people who died for the cause of the kingdom of God. And here is Jesus in the whitest clothing possible. And then this really amazing thing happens next. It says, Elijah, another Old Testament guy who's long been dead, appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. There's Moses, again, on top of the mountain. Remember last time he was on top of the mountain? Who was he talking to? He was talking to God. Who is Moses talking to right here? He's talking to Jesus. Now, if I'm Peter, James, or John, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. That's Elijah, and that's Moses. This is crazy, and they're talking to Jesus like they know him. How could Jesus know somebody who died long before he was ever born? And here's the answer to question number one, who is God? Jesus is God. Jesus is the divine character. He is divine being in the very flesh. 
And this is something that the disciples aren't fully wrapping their mind around. They, they can't just quite yet. But we know on the other side of the resurrection that this is true. In fact, we're seeing the very beginnings of, of what is called Trinity theology. The Trinity is the fact that we believe in one God, but he's three distinct beings. One God, but it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You say, Blake, is it one God? So they're all one. They just change forms. No, they don't change forms. They're distinct. Okay, so we believe in three different gods. No, no, no. We believe in one God. And and you can begin to see why this took the Christian community almost 100 years, 200 years to fully define how they talked about this language because it is so confusing. And if you try to understand it in your brain, your brain will eventually explode. So it's best you just take it on faith that we believe in one God, three distinct beings. And here is Jesus in front of them standing as God. And this is why, friends, this is why people who say, you know, I believe in Jesus as a good teacher, or I believe Jesus as a prophet, or I believe in Jesus as a way to God, cannot actually say that with any kind of credibility. Because if you read the Gospels, Jesus is very clear that he's not just a good prophet or a good teacher or one way to God. He is literally God in the flesh. Which means Jesus is either an egomaniac or he's really God. Which means we either completely deny what he did, like we do with cult leaders, or we worship him as God. There is no in-between. Who is God? It's Jesus. And then uh, we go to verse 5, and uh, I really believe Peter had ADHD. <laughs> I, I think if he lived today, he'd be on medication, which is why he's my, uh, my favorite Bible character. I think me and Peter really are a lot alike in many ways. And Peter is witnessing this, and, and you can't blame Peter. It'd be absolutely insane to be watching. I mean, I, I can't even really put it into the theory. It'd be like if I led you up on a mountain, it'd be kind of like if I led you up on a mountain, and all of a sudden Elvis Presley appeared, and I'm like having a conversation with Elvis, and you're like, wait a minute, that guy's long dead. Except for it's way greater than Ellis because these are like the heroes of their faith. And it's like that's, that's literally Moses. I, I grew up in Sunday school coloring pictures of this guy. And there he is, you know. Uh, and, and so Peter it has this thing where he, he likes to put his foot in his mouth. And I don't know if you know people who they just feel like they always have to say something. Like there's something going on. And, and, and we can't just sit there and be quiet. So we've got we've to say something. And uh, Peter says something. It says this, verse 5. Peter said to Jesus... Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then I love John Mark's commentary in verse 6. So we know from church history that the Gospel of Mark is actually John Mark writing down the recollections of Peter himself. So Peter's telling the story to John Mark, and I can just imagine he get into the part of the transfiguration, and Jesus is sharing the story with him. And then he said, and, and then, then I said something about three shelters. And like Mark just like, you said what? And then, and then, and then Mark adds this commentary, because he did not know what to say, <laughs> since they were terrified. And this is uh, the point where we get to the second question, which is, what has God done? Why is Peter terrified? I mean, it's amazing, yeah, of course, but what? Why is he so afraid? Well, you you get to find out why he's so afraid in verse 7. It says, a cloud appeared. Now, if you were to read your Bible all the way through, nobody does that, right? We get to numbers and we quit. Uh, But if you were to read the Bible all the way through, you were to actually do that, what you would find is that God's presence is often found in the form of a cloud. It's an overshadowing cloud. And when the people of Israel saw this cloud... They were afraid because everybody knows if you get wrapped up in the cloud of God, you will die. As unholy people, we will be demolished. Just like darkness cannot stand in the presence of light, unholiness cannot stand in the presence of that which is holy. 
And so Peter begins to see this cloud forming, coming towards him. He knows it's the presence of God. He sees Jesus and he sees Moses and he sees Elijah. And this is why he says, let us build three shelters for you. Because the shelter, that word, can also be translated tabernacle. What they did in the Old Testament and what religions all over still do is they build tabernacles for their gods, and the gods live in the tabernacles. That's not for the sake of the god so that he can have a great house. The tabernacle is actually for the sake of the people, so that the god's presence and holiness is contained in a place that they can go to safely and not get too close to the holiness. So Peter, in this fear, the first thing he can shout is, let us build three shelters so that we can be safe. And I can almost imagine the fear of Peter. It would be almost like if there was like a... A, a hurricane or a tsunami coming. You can just imagine the big wall of water. You're just going about your day and all of a sudden you see this massive wall of water coming for you. Can you imagine the fear you would feel in that moment? Take that times 10 because the very presence of the holy God of this universe is coming in a cloud over them. And then this amazing thing happens. It says a cloud appeared and overshadowed them, meaning they are now inside the cloud. It's no longer coming. It is overshadowing them. And the crazy thing is, is they are not destroyed. In fact, it says this, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In the cloud, they do not find wrath. They find love. They are in worship. Listen to the son. The love of God has completely encased them. They, they are experiencing the presence of God. These guys believed in God in the way you and I believe in God, but they are experiencing the love of God in a way that we can't even describe. This, my friends, is what we are going towards. If you ever want to know what it's like when the kingdom of God is here and God's presence is fully everywhere, it'll be an overshadowing love and experience of God's presence in which we feel the love of God as the love for his son overflows to you and I. In fact, C.S. Lewis says this is what we're all living for, this, this feeling of overshadowing love. He says the reason that we, we love our lovers, the reason why we uh, search for things in, in drugs and, and in experiences is because we are, we're searching for this experience. And for those of us who are Christ followers, we have a little taste of this, don't we? Like there's times in our lives where we feel the presence of God. Maybe it's in a worship service or when you, you first believed or for me, like at church camp, I remember as a kid, there were just a couple times where I felt the presence of God and I would go back to the same church camp and it just, it was different. I didn't feel the overshadowing love of God in this way. We get a little foretaste of it, but Peter, James and John are experiencing it fully, totally. And then what Mark does next, as if to, to say, that it's all because of Jesus. Verse 8, it says this. So suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Which is Mark's way of saying, Peter's way of saying through Mark, that it wasn't Moses that allowed them to experience this presence. It wasn't Elijah. It was Jesus. It was Jesus alone. See, Jesus is not just the God on the other side of the holiness, but he's also the bridge to the God of holiness. That through Jesus, average, normal people, in the case of Peter and Blake Farley, below average people can stand in the presence of the very God of this universe and not be disintegrated. This is the message of the gospel. That through Jesus, we can have relationship with God. Truly experience relationship with God. It's like the difference when a friend tells you, hey, there's a really good restaurant, you should check it out. And, and you believe your friend, you're like, yeah, it's a good restaurant. We should check it out. 
And then actually going to the restaurant and experiencing the food for yourself, it's like a completely different level because you've experienced it. And what Jesus says is you don't just have to believe about God anymore, but through me, you can experience God. And one day we will fully experience this presence. But the next verse reminds us that we're not quite there yet. So if we ask, what has God done? Well, through Jesus, he's made a way for us to God. But how did he make a way? It was through suffering. And that's exactly what we find in verse 8. Verse 9, rather, as we keep reading. As they were coming down the mountain. Going off the mountaintop, we're on our way back into reality. And the first thing Jesus brings up to break us into reality is this. He ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. In this amazing moment of worship, all of a sudden, there's nothing there. Peter, James, and John know on their way down, their friends aren't going to believe what they try to tell them. Yeah, Jesus took up on the mountain, and then there, there was Moses and Elijah, and then God's presence came in over us. They're like, okay, what kind of drugs is this Jesus guy giving you, right? And as they come down, Jesus' first thing, after this amazing experience, is to remind them of his death. He says, don't tell anybody until I have died. And then the disciples begin to ask questions. It says, they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Because in, in their mindset, in the Jewish mindset, it, it was supposed to be the Messiah was going to come and then he's going to raise everybody from the dead and it was going to be, we're going to sing Kumbaya and everything's great. So why is Jesus going to have to die and rise from the dead? It didn't quite make sense to them. And then it says this, verse 11. Then they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And so here's what Peter's doing right here, uh, I, I believe. So we already know Peter doesn't, fully uh, understand why Jesus has to suffer. Remember in, in chapter 8, Jesus, uh, Peter says, you are the Messiah, and, and that's a correct answer. But then Jesus begins to talk about his, his death that is coming, and Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus then rebukes Peter. And here's Peter's kind of way of saying, hey, I know in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says that once Elijah comes, everything will be restored. So what's up with all this suffering stuff? Why do you keep saying you're going to have to die? Why do you keep saying we're going to have to bear these problems and these struggles in this life? Why don't we just immediately go to that? Like just encompass everything with your love. I don't want to go back to the suffering, Jesus. And so he, he's kind of subtly saying here, hey, that was Elijah we saw. So why do we have to go through the suffering? And Jesus draws him back to the reality of the world we live in. This is a world of suffering. This is a world, look at me, I love you guys, this is a world where you will watch everybody you love die unless you die first. That's the cold hard truth. I know you're like, whoa, I'm glad I came to church this morning. But the fact of the matter is, in this world, we will suffer. And that's exactly what Jesus says to this question. It says, then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus says, Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Then he asked them a question. He says, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Which we know Jesus is saying, just as I am the new Moses coming to liberate people not just from Egyptian slavery, but from the slavery of their sin and the slavery of the power of sin and eventually the slavery of the presence of sin. John the Baptist came as the new Elijah preparing the way for me. And what did they do to Elijah? Well, in chapter 6, we saw the king cut his head off. You see, the, the, the way to greatness is through suffering. And Peter, James, and John, I want you to come with me. I really do. I can show you the way to greatness, but you cannot get there without a pathway to suffering. 
And, and here's, here's the truth, friends. Jesus does not increase our suffering. You're going to suffer. Look at me. You're going to. Whether you're a Christian, an atheist, a Buddhist, you're going to suffer in this world. What Jesus does is he says, I can help you walk into your suffering instead of running from your suffering and try to get around your suffering. And if you walk in your suffering, through your suffering with me, you will then find the presence of God. You will then find the love of God. You will then find freedom in God. You, you see, if, if you want a healthy marriage, if your marriage is falling apart or, or you, you have a problem that you haven't told anybody about and you're trying to figure it out on your own, God's not just going to simply take it away. You're going to have to actually go into your past. You're going to have to go into the suffering to find the freedom and the love that you want. That, that's actually how it works. See, and this leads me to the third question, which is, who are we? Well, we are dependent upon Christ. That's who we are. I'm dependent upon Jesus, not just on the mountain in the presence of God. Yes, on the day of judgment, when I'm standing before God's holy throne, I have nothing to say. I pastored a church in Woodward. No, my only hope is Jesus. He said, I'm good, right? That's the only hope I have is to be dependent upon Jesus on the day of judgment. But friends, right now, the only hope I have to walk through my suffering, to go through the traumas that I have, to go through the things I've tried to avoid and the things I hate about myself is to depend upon Jesus Christ. That's the only way I live in this life. That's the only way I do any kind of ministry that matters is to be totally dependent upon Jesus. And as Jesus comes down the mountain to the other nine disciples, he sees that these knuckleheads still have not quite figured that out. By the way, some of us are knuckleheads in this room and we still haven't quite figured that out. And, I, and I really, this scene, it's not funny because something very serious is going on with this, this little boy. Uh, but it is kind of funny to me. Uh, verse 14, it says, when they came to the disciples, the other nine, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. And I can just imagine Jesus going, I'll let you guys for 30 minutes. Like, <laughs> and he sees the nine and they're, they're arguing with the scribes. And he's like, what's, what's going on here? And then we see this. Verse 15, when the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. And Jesus' first question is to his disciples. I imagine it's like a parent who's just exhausted. And he says, what are you arguing with him about? And what's interesting is the disciples and the scribes, neither one of them answers. You know who answers is the dad of the little boy who needs help for his son. He answers before they can answer because to him this isn't just a theory. This is actually real life stuff going on in his life that he needs help with. It says this in verse 16. He asked them, what are you arguing about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Which just makes the picture all the more vivid in my mind. I can just see the nine disciples. You know, Jesus already gave them authority to drive out demons. So this guy walks up with his son. Hey, can you drive out a demon? And I can imagine them all arrogantly going, oh yeah, we got this. Watch out. And, uh, you know, the first disciple, probably Thomas or something, he goes, be gone, demon. And then the boy just convulses in front of him. And Judas is like, you idiot, let me try. And then just one by one, kind of like Spider-Man who can't get his webs to shoot out. They're like, this should really work. And then the scribes come and say, see, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And they start arguing. And, uh, and, and the guy, poor guy with his son's like, can somebody just you know, maybe help my son? And then we get to uh, verse 19. And uh, Jesus shows a little bit of attitude. I was hoping Liz would read this with some, some attitude. That's why we chose Liz. I thought she'd really just kind of bring it on home. Uh, you got there you go. I'm going to, uh, yeah, verse 19. So Jesus replied to them, you unbelieving generation. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. 
When I first read that, I was like, why is Jesus so upset at them? And yet I realized the reason he's upset at them, I believe, is because they're more worried about themselves than the little boy. They have the God of this universe, the one who has given them the power to drive out demons in the first place, and nobody thinks to ask him to help. It'd be like if you were a doctor and you came uh, here and you had two friends there and they were arguing about how to give CPR while a guy was choking on a grape right there. And they just kept arguing when you showed up and they didn't say, hey, how do we give CPR since you're a trained professional? You'd be so disappointed. You'd say, really? Why didn't you just ask me how to do it? And this is where Jesus is. He's saying this boy is being seized by a demon and you guys are so dependent upon yourself that you don't even ask me. Then it says, verse 20, says, bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And uh, Jesus says, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. I don't know why. I just imagine Jesus being really cool and calm and collected there, right? Like the boy's on the ground convulsing. The father's probably freaking out. And Jesus is like, so how long has this been going on? Uh, and the dad answers. You can almost hear the urgency in his voice. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus says this, and I believe much softer to the dad than he was with the disciples. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Then we have this beautiful prayer. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. I do believe, help my unbelief. And that was enough. It says, when Jesus saw that the crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. Never enter him again. See, this man is dependent upon Jesus even for his belief. He's riddled with doubts. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Friends, this is fundamentally what separates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion is you do the right things and then God will love you. Our religion is you can't do the right things. You have to depend upon Jesus to do those things for you. To be enveloped in his love is only to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. But what we do in Christian circles, because we love to make things about rules, is we say, okay, but you've got to believe the right things, right? Like you have, like we think we show up to heaven, we're going to get a, a theology test and, and there's like a belief meter in our head and God can see into our heart. And he's like, do you really believe that? Do you believe that fully with all of your heart? We think there's no room for doubt. Doubt's what keeps us out, right? No, this man riddled with doubt. Says, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, I need your help to even believe in this Jesus. And Jesus says, that's the guy that's totally dependent upon me. That's the guy who prays, even though he's not fully sure of what he's believing And he prays this beautiful prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And friends, if you're going to walk through the suffering in your life, if you're going to go back into the dark places of your life and quit ignoring them and and move into this phase, you're going to have to have many prayers like that where you say, Lord, this is really scary. I don't want to tell that person what I need to tell them. I don't want to go to that place I need to go. I don't want to do it, Lord. I believe in you, though, but please help my unbelief. Give me the courage to take the next step. I believe, help my unbelief. And uh, the final thing, so we said, who is God? He's Jesus. We said, what has he done? Well, through Jesus, he's made a way for us to come into relationship with him. Who are we? We are dependent upon the spirit of God for how do we live? 
We live bringing our precious things to Jesus. We live bringing our dark parts to Jesus and watching them look like they die only to see them rise again better. So here's, here's what I mean. Look at this man. He's, he's bringing his son to Jesus. Uh, how many of you are parents? This is not a matter of theory for him. This is his baby. And he's trusting his baby to this man who he's heard about, but he doesn't know. Riddled with doubts already. And he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And he gives his son to Jesus. And look at what happens. It gets worse before it gets better. It says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse so that many said, look at what they said, he's dead. He looked dead. Jesus, it didn't work. It didn't stick. I don't know what you're trying to do here, but this boy has died. And then there's the but Jesus. But Jesus, taking him up by the hand, raised him and he stood up. But look at me, friends. This is a story where things happen very quickly. In your life, the but Jesus sometimes takes a while. The but Jesus sometimes takes years. There's a model of spiritual growth that I really like. It's the eight phases of the Christian growth that phases that everybody goes through in your faith with Jesus. And I think it originates with Dallas Willard, but I'm not totally sure where it originates. But the first phase for everybody as they're born is you're, you're indifferent to God. You're indifferent to Jesus. You don't think about him uh, when it comes to your daily life. He doesn't have any impact on it. And that can be just because you don't know or it can be because you chose it. You're an atheist or an agnostic. The second step is neutral. People are neutral to Jesus. Like he's okay. If he can help me on my journey, awesome. But I'm going to kind of ignore his teachings on sexuality and money. That's generally where we have a rub with Jesus and we're like, okay, everything else. But Jesus, if you want to help me with my plans, that's awesome. And when Jesus doesn't help you with your plans, you get frustrated. And a lot of people who are neutral just kind of go from indifferent to neutral. They go back and forth. The third phase, which is when real true Christianity begins, is conversion. And that's when you make the decision because the Spirit has wrought something in your heart. You move yourself out of the center of your circle. And you put Jesus in the center. And now he determines everything in your life. You make the decision. Jesus, when I come across something that is not in accord with your word, I'm going to do the best I can to repent and be in line with your word. So if I read the Bible and I feel led by the Spirit that I'm supposed to stand on my head for 30 minutes every night, even though it makes no sense to me, I'm going to start trying to stand on my head for 30 minutes every night. That's the way a converted Christian would believe. And by the way, I haven't found anything about that in the Scripture, so you're good. Uh, and I would be unable to do it anyways. Anyways, ADHD, right? There's the, the Peter coming out of me. The, the next phases happen really quickly, and they're often overlapping. And this is how I can usually tell the fruit of somebody who's, who's really like, uh, fired up about the Lord, often for the first time in their life. Uh, you go into helping relationships, meaning you want to be involved. You want to be with other men or other women if you're a woman. And you have a hunger for the word of God. Like you want to learn a lot about God and what's going on. And then responsibilities and ministry. So you no longer just want to watch and be there. You want to participate. Hey, can I get up on the stage? Can I serve in the kids ministry? What can I do to help? I want to be a part of what's going on here. And I call this really the, the honeymoon stage, especially that first six months where everything's just up and to the right. I love God. Things are getting a little bit better. I had a great time in prayer this morning. I'm learning about God. I feel good about myself. Everything's awesome. And then we get to the fifth stage, and this is, or sorry, the sixth stage, and this is where a lot of people get stuck. In fact, a lot of people just bounce from four to five the rest of their Christian journey. It's really sad. The next phase is the inward journey. And this is when we go into the depths of our wounds, into the depths of our hurts, and we begin to allow God to heal them. And what happens to this, at this stage is people will eventually bump up into a trial in life. They will lose their job. They will have a relationship fail. 
They will say, hey, I thought I was a Christian. It's supposed to fix everything. And here I am drinking again. Or here I am watching porn again. Or whatever it might be. We bump up against the wall. And then one of three things happens. Number one, you get frustrated and you think God doesn't help. And so you call, fall off the journey completely. People don't believe in God anymore. They say, I tried that thing. It didn't work. So give me something else to try. Number two, and this is the saddest. We have churches full of people like this. You put on a fake smile, you hide the dark parts, and you pretend like everything's okay, and you have moments where things are better and moments where things are worse, and you kind of just accept it. You don't actually believe freedom is available to you on this side of eternity. Or the third phase, the third thing you can do when you reach this phase is to go into the darkness, to ask yourself before the Lord and before others, why do I do the things I do? To confess what's going on in your life, to take the scary step to bring it to light and then to get with other people who have already been through that inward journey you need to go on and taking the time to begin to work on the issues with Jesus and with God's people around you. And this is terrifying. But on the other side of it is light. On the other side of it, we have a spirit-empowered ministry and we have a transforming union. And you'll see some of these people. I mean, they, they are pretty rare, but there are people who you can tell They're just overflowing with joy and peace and kindness. They've been through some stuff with the Lord and they came out more like Jesus. See, the reason we have churches full of people who are nothing like Jesus is because we don't actually want to suffer with Jesus. We want Jesus just to be our quick fix. And here's here's what happens. If you just want Jesus to be your quick fix, you'll just keep making the same mistakes. You go into another relationship and it'll end the same way. You'll still be riddled with anxiety. You'll never fully heal from that compulsive desire you have. You just keep bouncing back and forth. And Jesus is saying, quit trying to go around your suffering, go through your suffering with me. Depend upon me. And friends, the very first step to doing this is to bring it to light and to tell somebody. If you you want a healthy marriage, if you want to overcome these things, the first thing you have to do is break through denial and actually tell somebody what's going on. You have to break through the denial and tell somebody so that you can be connected with other people who have already been through it. Because here's what the enemy wants you to believe. That you are completely alone and there is no help for you. Whatever you did was too bad. Whoever you are, you're too broken. You're too old. You're too young. You're too this or you're too that. And you can't break through. In my profession, it's even worse because you know what the enemy tells me? You're a pastor. You can't. You, you, you would hurt the faiths of other people if you ever told somebody that. You ever told them what, that you struggle with thinking about some of the people in your congregation. It wouldn't be good for you. We have this voice whispering in our ears at all times saying we're to this or we're to that. And you know what that does? It keeps us trapped exactly where we are. Jesus says, no, come through the suffering. So my, my prayer today is that some of you would bring it to light. You would say, you know what, Blake, I can't stop drinking and it scares me. I was abused when I was a kid, and I haven't ever told anybody because I know it wasn't my fault, but I feel shame for it. I'm riddled with anxiety. I can't get over my bitterness. My marriage is on the rocks, and nobody knows. I had an affair, and nobody knows. I eat to cope with emotions, and I hate myself for it. I was neglected as a kid and haven't dealt with the trauma. We had a miscarriage and never fully grieved the loss, or we lost somebody in our family, and we kind of just brushed over it. I have dark thoughts that I've never shared with anyone before, and I'm not sure what people would think about me. You know, if we were a church family that actually said those things to each other, can you imagine what kind of healing we would actually begin to find? But instead, you know what we often do is we try to just put on a smile. And yet today, I hope we break through that. Like, I can't forgive somebody and I don't know how to do it. And it's ruining my life. That's the kind of things we have to say to one another. Because it's then when we go through the suffering, we can begin to find healing for those things. 
And look at me. I'm saying some, some really big words and it sounds exciting. I'm telling you right now, that's step one. That you're going to go through some dark things. Remember what I said? We bring our precious things to him, our dark things to him. And sometimes it looks worse. In fact, often it looks worse before it looks better. If you ask anybody who works in addiction and they actually work on the, the roots and the wounds of the addiction, they will tell you that it's at the second six months of recovery that they see the most relapses because people are trying to cope with the actual dark parts of their life. It's why some marriages who need help oftentimes get worse before they get better because you're bringing up things you've hidden for years. And yet you just say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you take another step forward. This past year in my own life, I've started working through an inward journey and I'm, I'm excited to share more about it when I have the words for it, right? I'm, I'm still in process. You got a guy in process right here. And yet I can tell you, I've experienced God's love and grace in more unique ways than ever before this past year working through this journey. But I will also tell you, there's been times where I felt all alone, where I felt completely in the dark. I didn't want to get out of bed. And I asked myself, why in the world did I ever even start this journey? I was fine. I'd long forgotten some of these wounds where people had hurt me, where I had done things that I shouldn't have done. I had forgotten them and I'd moved on with my life and now they're brought up and I'm feeling them like I felt them for the very first time. And you see, the good news of the gospel and the reason why Jesus went ahead and suffered is because as Romans 8 will tell us, his spirit testifies to our spirit and Jesus did not avoid suffering, although he could have. You see, on top of the mountain, he was enveloped in God's love. And what did God say to him? He said, this is my beloved son who I love. But it wouldn't be very long from this moment that Jesus would be on a cross. And he's not enveloped in God's love. He's alone and he's naked. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what do we do, Blake, in those moments? Well, Jesus tells us as we close. Jen and Briley, if you guys want to go ahead and come up. Verse 28. It says, after he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. You can only come out by prayer, my friends. See, when somebody tells me their prayer life is struggling, it's usually because they're either not on mission or they're not really working on some stuff. Because let me tell you something. When you go on the inward journey, when you go into those dark places, there are some prayers that come from the depths of your heart. God, I need you, I need you, I need you, and I don't know a way out. Friends, today I pray some of you would pray those kind of prayers. I pray that you would use the Connect card and you would write on there, you'd say, Blake, here's what I'm struggling with. Or you would come up and you would talk to me after. You'd talk to somebody, you'd tell somebody, you'd say, I've never told anybody this. I'm terrified out of my mind. But I believe. Please help my unbelief. I want that for you. We all have those areas of suffering where we can either go around and go through them. There's no quick fix, friends, but Jesus says, if you follow me, I'll fo- you'll follow me to the other side. And on the other side, there's greatness. You get to decide your path. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent your son to die for the sins of the world so that we can have access to you. Whoa, what, what wonderful access we receive. And we await the day in which your presence fully lives the earth everywhere and we're enveloped in your love. But God, right now we live in between. We're waiting for that moment. And some of us have just given up hope that we'll ever experience any more of your presence than what we've already got. And we're just kind of living until we die. Lord, but today I pray that they would experience the power of your Holy Spirit, the love of the church. And they would see that through confession and through bringing 
things to light through not running from their suffering, but running into their suffering, they can find the healing that they desire, that on this side of eternity, they can begin to experience spirit-empowered ministry and a transforming union with you. Lord, we love you. We worship you. Right now, I want you to take about 20 seconds and just say, Lord, what are you saying to me right now through this message? Father God, this is terrifying. It is so scary. And yet I know you're working in the hearts of people right now. I know there's darkness that they have never shared or are scared to share. And they're feeling, they're feeling pulled. They know what they ought to do. Lord, would you give them just enough faith to do it? Lord, we are believers and yet we are dependent upon you for that belief. Give us what we need, Father. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing to this amazing Savior, friends. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.